Welcome to Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed, a bi-weekly podcast in collaboration with the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, focusing on expert interviews that explore the insights, habits, and expertise of individuals both in and outside of medicine. My name is Dr. Kara King, and I am your host. This week on Unscrubbed, we have the amazing Dr. Cecile Ferrando, who is my colleague here at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. She is the director of the Transgender Medicine and Surgery Program here at the clinic, and she's currently the program director of both the Female Pelvic Medicine and Reconstructive Surgery Fellowship, as well as the program director of her brand new Transgender Surgery and Medicine Fellowship, which she just started this past year. Following the International Transgender Day of Visibility, which was celebrated just this past week on March 31st, we could not think of a more fitting guest than this fierce advocate. Also, we are trying something new this month and breaking Cecile's interview into two episodes that will be released in two back-to-back segments. The second part of this interview will be dropped next week, so stay tuned because she does get a little spicy. For our episode today, Cecile opens up about her journey into reconstructive transgender surgery, how she prepared for her first few cases post-fellowship, and the importance of transparency with our patients. We hope you enjoy. So I am so incredibly excited to have Dr. Cecile Ferrando with us today. I am currently sitting in her living room. Hi, Cecile. Hi. Good afternoon, everyone. How are you, Kara? <laughs> I've been waiting for this moment for so long. <laughs> Seeing you with a mic, just, it, really, it really pumps me up. We did always say that we were going to end up working together, so... And this puts it in a different context. <laughs> so true. In so many different areas. Correct. Here Correct. we are in Cleveland. L- lucky us. Lucky <laughs> Lucky us. us. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. I'm going to jump right into this. So Cecile, your entire career has really been focused on the road less traveled. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I think it's, if you look at it from any sort of specialty perspective. I think you would say that about anybody who was in either urology or plastic surgery doing what I do too. I think this um, type of care has sort of always been a little bit on the fringe, starting to become really more common now, especially in academic practice. But when I was interested in it early on, a lot of people weren't you know, doing trans care, trans surgery, especially in the academic arena. And so I would say my path was a little bit different than most people going through gynecology for sure. Where did this passion and inspiration come from? Is there anything that happened early on that really drove this? Or how did you fall into this niche? So, you know, it's, I'll give you the short version of kind of a long, long story, but I was always interested in human sexuality and behavior. I sort of, I went back and forth about whether I wanted to be a medical doctor or whether I wanted to study psychology and behavior. I was always really inclined to be surgical. I liked using my hands and and the idea of doing reconstructive surgery was always very interesting to me. And so it took me a while to figure out how to meld the two. And I had some experiences before I went to medical school. I took a, a gap year between my undergraduate experience in medical school. And I worked with um, underprivileged, underserved youth and homeless youth and came to realize very quickly that a lot of these marginalized kids um, had had left their homes or had been asked, unfortunately, to leave their homes because they were 
either sort of uh, gender fluid, identified as trans. And it wasn't something we were talking a lot about back then in the medical community. We're talking about the early 2000s. And I was very fascinated by these group of individuals and these young individuals who very interestingly seem to have a, a very strong sense of themselves, probably stronger than my own sense of myself, which is was funny. And they taught me a lot. And so while I could have gone down this path where I could have done, you know, psychology and studied gender identity disorder, gender dysphoria, those are the diagnoses and the terminology we use today, I actually it motivated me to become a surgical specialist. So very early on I knew that I wanted to do surgery in the reconstructive realm to help this this population. I had done some research and realized that um, very few surgeons existed who did these surgeries. And there was not much in the actual academic literature on these surgeries. You had to sort of find websites and it was hard to get information. And it, it made me think, well, if I can't get this information, patients looking for this type of care can't get this information. So where do people go? So it's sort of, everything came full circle and I found the patient population I knew I wanted to care for. I knew I wanted to become a surgeon mostly because I felt like this service was almost obsolete. It just didn't exist. And I remember, you know, being 22 years old and thinking, boy, how many years is it going to take me to actually get from here to there? And as it turns out, it went by very fast. I think that's a sign that you found the right the right path, right? When it when it goes by fast and it doesn't necessarily feel like work, I guess. I think I've been tremendously lucky. Um, I've also just always been surrounded by people and mentors who have um, either appreciated my interest or supported it or both. And so it's been it was really joyful learning how to care for this patient population. And so, well, it took a while until I sort of felt competent enough to do it. It really was a sort of very rewarding experience going the whole, going along the whole way. So I'm going to fast forward this to your first year as an attending. Mm. Okay. <clears throat> Here that, we was are. A, that was a hard year. <laughs> <laughs> I'm bringing it right there, girl. All right. So we are at Cleveland Clinic, first year out. There's nobody else doing really what you're doing right? Can you talk me through, let's just say, I don't know if I want to say the first six months or your first few cases, what did, what did that feel like? What were you thinking about? What were you worried about? How did you tackle you know, the, those first few months on your own? Well, I mean, I've talked, it's funny, I've talked about this to you know, the fellows network. I, I gave a, a keynote lecture to the fellows at one of the SGS meetings and I talked a little bit about this and I still sort of feel very connected to this storyline because it's what keeps me sort of very grounded and what makes me remind trainees about what it's going to be like when you're first out. You know, I had this experience. I was lucky in that I stayed where I trained. So I was with all my sponsors and mentors. I was in a very sort of safe place where everybody knew me. So that made it very, that made it easy. But the challenging thing was I was starting a Euro gynecology practice. So that's hard in itself, right? If you ask any of us who come out and when we're first starting to do our own cases and that that responsibility of caring for patients and doing a good job is tremendous. And so I was living through that. Again, luckily, because I was around the people who trained me, that sort of made it a little bit easier. But then I was also starting this new subspecialty and I didn't have, a, no one at Cleveland Clinic does these surgeries. So there's no one to sort of really turn to if you need mentorship or if you're confused about a case or if you, even if you get yourself into trouble intraoperatively, it's can be tricky. And 
there was there's also this component of there was this massive I I really carried this massive weight on my shoulders because I mean I think for a very for a long time starting mid fellowship as people knew that this was my interest it created a lot of buzz within GYN and and urogynecology and minimally invasive surgery in that I was asked to do a lot of talks and a lot of presentations and I sort of got known very very early on as the person who was doing transgender care. But the truth of it is I had a ton of experience with the actual patient population and doing some of the care, a lot of the gynecology care, the routine care. I really knew these patients. But the actual reconstructive surgical part was something that I really, I had my own learning curve for that. And there's this very healthy balance of in order to be legitimate in this world, you have to carry yourself in a certain way, right? And you have to be confident about what you know, honest about what you don't know, and confident about what you do know. And so I almost also, I almost, I had this sort of sense of imposter syndrome. We talk about it all the time because I was really, I was talking the talk so that I could bring patients in, develop my career. But at the same time, I had to sort of learn to walk that walk. And it was daunting because I, you know, I trained. I did apprenticeships. I observed a lot of surgery. I did a lot of cadaver work. I walked myself through these cases. But with you know my first 10 cases, I had to do these surgeries for real and I had no one to really to, to lean on. I had to lean on myself and my skills and my knowledge of anatomy. And that, and, and that was tough. And you know, it's my first case ever um, was really challenging. It went a lot longer than I expected. It didn't go as well as I had hoped. And I'm very thankful for that patient who has really, who taught me a lot and was very sort of uh, supportive of me starting um, my practice. Um, she's, you know, doing well, very well now. But it was a challenging surgery. And I think that whenever you're sort of doing something new within a field that's not sort of doing that kind of care, where there's not a lot of mentorship and a lot of teaching, um, you have to rely on yourself to, to develop your skills. And that can, that can be very scary and very challenging. And, you know, in gynecology, we talk a lot about thresholds in terms, you have to do X number of cases to be good, you know, especially in minimally invasive surgery. There's no data on that in this field. We don't know when are you good, you know. When is your work good, and so and when you're first starting, you wonder, am I ever going to be good? Uh, and that can be, especially when you have an entire specialty that already thinks you are. That's scary. Wow, I have so much to unpack there. You gave me goosebumps. <laughs> Thank you, Cecile. Where do I want to start? So. I wanna start just with counseling your very first patient, right? So when you're starting to do a brand new procedure on your own, how much do you actually open up to your patients about this is my first or, you know, just in counseling, how much do you open up? Yeah, so for me being transparent was really important. Um, and so when patients, you know, called actually, we set it up such that we, we chose as an enterprise, as an institution to not market the surgical service line until we sort of felt like we were doing high volume and we really wanted to bring in patients and we're willing to do cases from afar. And, and, and so we, we, the only thing we did was we play, you know, we put those procedures on my procedure list. You know, the transgender community is a community that sort of is very in tune in, in, in terms of where they can get services. And so eventually some patients did, you know, find me. And of, of course I had, I had already published a lot on, on the routine care of the transgender patients. And so it wasn't like I wasn't a known entity in that community. I was just developing that surgical skill set. 
And so when I, f- my first few patients, they were, I, we, I counseled them about being my first patients. Um, they were well aware. I also gave them referrals for other surgeons. Um, I provided them um, with the names of the people who allowed me to observe surgeries with the individual who trained me the most, almost providing like references in a CV. You know, and then I told them about sort of the way you normally would when you consent a patient for surgery. We went through all of the co- possible adverse events, complications that could happen. And so, but to me, the transparency was was really important. I don't know at what point I stopped telling patients what number. I do remember, I think, telling a patient, I think probably at, at, after I got about after a dozen cases, I started saying, oh, I've done a dozen cases. And then and then eventually, I mean, right now I couldn't tell you how many I've done. And so I'm happy to be on this end of it now. It's much easier to tell patients, you know, I have a full week where I do, this is all I do every week, you know, once a month. And, you know, I know we do about 50 to 65 cases specifically of this one surgery a year. So it feels much easier telling patients that now. But I think when you're first starting... I think it's okay to tell patients that you're new at this and that you're trained and that you're ready. It can be a, a difficult conversation. It, it feels vulnerable. And when you're the surgeon, you don't want to look vulnerable, right? But especially in this field, I think patients deserve, they, de- they deserve to, to have a lot of honest communication with their care providers. A lot of these patients have been marginalized for a very long time and haven't had safe commun- safe relationships with people. And so if I can offer that to them as their, their doctor, then I, 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 I think I should. So important, right? I think a lot of us, you know, as surgeons, right, we're supposed to have all the answers and we are the experts. And it's really hard for us to be vulnerable in front of other colleagues as well as patients. But keeping that transparency, I agree, only sets us up for success. So it takes a really strong person though to do that, I think. Yeah, and the the trickiest part about that, I mean, it wasn't the trickiest part, but that year, I think I gave, I gave the most talks that year. Mm-hmm. And so here you are, you know, and you know this. I mean, when you give talks, you provide all these beautiful videos and the st- and all of those things come with experience, right? Those things come with videotaping yourself, you know, and having all these individual wonderful clips and pictures and. And so, you know, I felt really sort of ineffective as a speaker in my first year. We're talking about sort of 2016, 2017, because I didn't have this massive portfolio and I still had to project sort of this confidence. And while I, I had sort of this knowledge base and this, you know, deep, deep rooted passion and interest, it I felt very um, exposed a bit. Um, and it was something that I had to overcome each time. I mean, now you ask me to give a talk and it's, you know, it's talking about sort of, you know, what I do on Monday and it's, it's a joy to talk about. And I love showing everything that we're doing and how we're innovating and, and I'm okay talking about complications because, you know, for every small, you know, concept, you know, complication that might happen with this kind of surgery, you know, there are a hundred non-complications that are fantastic and with beautiful and wonderful functional outcomes and you know complications are inherent in surgery especially complicated surgery so you know that was a challenging year for many reasons it was like there were all these expectations and i was trying to meet them and i had my own silent personal expectations mm-hmm. but they were compounded by all the expe- expectations that were laid out by a lot of people and not just the people who knew me. It was actually more people who didn't know me that well, who just knew that I was doing this type of care. And so meeting all of those, 
you know, expectations was sort of the one of the biggest challenges too. It felt like a lot of pressure, but mm-hmm. you know, it also motivated me. There was no turning back. I remember, you know, I re- I, I had um, after my first case, I had some very intimate conversations with you know, Tommaso Falcone and Matt Barber, um, who are uh, people who are. I, I mean, I'm so thankful to them. They're they're some of the, my my dearest you know, mentors and sponsors about sort of thinking, I don't know if I actually want to do this. It was so hard. (laughs) I did my first case and I said, that was so hard. (laughs) It was, I I went into it that morning and, you know, uh, Joe Hill was my assistant. She was a fellow at the time, one of my co-fellows. She's now out in Salt Lake City. And Mark Walters was my (laughs) second assist. And I know, can you picture? I love this. He just looked at me the whole time, like, (laughs) you're going to do this, right? You've you've been saying that you were going to, you've been saying for a decade that you're going to get this done. So you better get this done. And it was hard. And I came out of that, you know, that surgery exhausted and thinking about all the people who were expecting me to be so successful and, and wanting me to be successful. And so it was a lot, um, but I, I channeled it and used it as motivation rather than allow it to sort of scare me off. But it doesn't mean that I didn't have moments. hearing throughout all this is that you have amazing mentors and sponsors who have helped raise you up and truly want to see you do well. Can you talk to me about how you chose your mentors and your sponsors? How have they shifted throughout your career? And I I know this is kind of a loaded question, but have you ever had a mentor or sponsor who you thought was a mentor or sponsor who ended up not being that role that you thought? Wait, that's a hard one. (laughs) Um, Yes to all of it, I guess. So I, we live in a world where we cannot succeed without people supporting us. And I think it's important to note that our mentors and sponsors don't have to be people who are senior to us, right? Our peers can be mentors and sponsors. And there's a difference between the two of them, right? Um, I would definitely, I've, I have been, extru- I mean, really lucky in that I would say that the people who trained me were served as both my mentors and sponsors. Like it's very rare sometimes that you are in a in a program where individuals can be both. And so, you know, Matt Barber and Fifi Perezo, Mark Walters, uh, Tommaso Falcone. And then I've had, you know, my sponsors, Linda Bradley and Margaret McKenzie. And I think um, all, you know, all individuals at the Cleveland Clinic. And of course I've got wonderful mentors and sponsors for my residency at uh, Brigham and Women's and Mass General. But I, I, I was just fortunate that a lot of them played that dual role. And then some of them played one role and not the other. I've also been really lucky. I guess that the theme of this podcast should be luck. luck. <laughs> I, who, I, I forget who what you know once told me. I know it's not sort of a new saying, but that it's better to be lucky than it is to be good sometimes, right? Sukhadam yeah. Surya says that every day yeah. in the OR. Yeah. I'm not sure <laughs> if I should be saying that, but that was a common theme in my fellowship. I mean, I feel that way when I'm operating, but when it comes to sort of all this mentorship, I also just, I feel lucky in that. I don't, I didn't feel like I necessarily approached a lot of people. When I was looking for training to learn how to do this kind of reconstructive surgery, I did seek outside mentorship from mostly plastic surgeons who were performing these surgeries. So I've been mentored by people outside of my fields. Um, But I have 
it like organically had gotten so many sponsors and developed such wonderful, strong relationships from so many of the people that I've worked with in the last, you know, five to 10 years. I've been very lucky. I think it's hard. I think we, but I don't think we ask for sponsorship or mentorship enough. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, we're, I don't know whether that comes from sort of this innate fear of rejection. We all have that, no matter how confident we are. Actually, probably the people who are the most confident are the people who fear rejection the most. But, you know, it's okay to almost to identify people that you feel like will will either teach you something or bring you up or both and approach them and say, hey, you know, I, I feel like I could get a lot out of working with you or spending time with you or just talking to you. And so that I've done as well. And I've been very lucky. And I think most of my outside relationships have been done that way. I've approached people and and said, hey, would you be interested in giving me just a little bit of time so I can pick your brain about X? And so, you know, it's funny, right? Most of my mentors or sponsors are don't even know what I do in the operating room. When it comes to this surgery, I would say most of them have no idea how to do this surgery. Right. But yet I have the best mentors and sponsors. And yes, I unfortunately have um, had the experience of thinking that I was being mentored or sponsored, mostly sponsored. I think mentorship is is usually more obvious, right? It It comes with sort of You've learned something, somebody's given you something, you can credit what you've learned to this one person, which is what mentorship is, also career development, asking them questions. Sponsorship is, you know, supporting people. And real sponsorship, um, I think, is um, comes from an altruistic place. So it comes from a place where there's no gain. I think real sort of pure sponsorship is somebody, and again, no matter what level they are, whether they're your peer, whether they're you know senior to you, whether they have mentored you as well, it's somebody who really just sort of, who wants to see you succeed so that you succeed. And so that the field is innovated and is moved forward and there, there's a paying it forward theme there. And I have sort of witnessed sometimes sponsorship that has sort of the ulterior you know, gain for that person as well. And I think that can be sort of a, it can almost be kind of an icky feeling when you realize it, especially if it sort of taints, you know, taints the relationship. So it can happen. And I think you just have to have your, you know, open eyes and learn from those experiences too. And um, not spend a lot of time on them though. I think that if you spend a lot of time on those kinds of negative experiences, you waste time and we only have so much of it, so. I love it. And you know, I recently, so I listen to Tim Ferriss. He's one of my Mm, favorite podcasters. And he always talks about how you become the average of the five people you you hang around the most. (laughs) And I think about that a lot. I hang out with you a lot. Yes. <laughs> this is like a leading question. I, no. Are we morphing? Are we gonna? Are we morphing? I think we might be. It feels just so right to me in my heart. Yeah. So yeah, you made me think about that. But in regard to your mentorship comments about how a lot of it is organic, but sometimes you can blatantly say, like, I want to be your mentee. Will you be my mentor? I I, I agree that I don't think we do that 
often enough. And I would say to our listeners, especially people who are maybe still in residency or fellowship, or even if, if you're out, actually coming and asking people to be your mentor, do it, yeah. right? Because sometimes just formalizing that relationship can be really powerful. I've done that to Carla Pugh. She's out at Stanford now. I'm like, Carla, I want you to mentor me. And she just taken me under, under her wing. And you know, we set up calls. And I think that's really powerful when you call it. So don't be afraid of that, right? Yeah, I completely agree. You know, I had sort of, it. I've come into that a little bit more now sort of being in the, you know, um, in, I'm still considering myself early career if anybody is interested. <laughs> yeah, I, agree I, with I you. think mid career yes. comes at 10 years out. So I'm getting there, but not quite. I'm still early, which translates to being young and youthful. Yeah. So that's what I'm going with. So young ovaries, in early yes. career, in early career, I, um, I have gotten better at that. When it comes to gynecology and urogynecology, I've always felt a sense of comfort in being able to approach people. When in transgender reconstructive surgery, the doors were often closed. A lot of, for a very long time, people did not want to mentor people in this surgery. It was very proprietary. Um, it belonged in the private sector, which was, uh, there was also, you know, financial gain and not teaching other people how to do the surgery. There also was obviously an um, ego component to it as well. And it, it's taken a while, but in, you know, in the last five to seven years now, there are people also in early career like myself, um, <laughs> who have sort of taken this into academics and are creating training programs. And now there are, I do feel like the opportunity to be mentored in this specific field has improved tremendously. And I'm thankful for that. And I'm, I, I hope to be considered a contributor to that because it's been important to me. But I agree with you. I think that, you know, what's shocking is I, I'm now at a point where people are asking me to mentor them, right? Like and me, like, yeah, like, will you please mentor me? I've made it very clear to you, I need to be mentored. <laughs> always, always. Um, <laughs> I don't know what kind of mentoring she's referring to or you're referring to, but uh, we can work this one out. Global life. Global mentoring, life. Global yes. life mentoring. But I think that's a really, you actually, what you just said is actually a good point in that mentorship is not always about uh, mentoring you about how to do surgery. And it's not always, I'm going to mentor you about how to apply for your first job and how to do your interview. We also really need mentors in our personal lives, right? We need mentors about how to like, how, and you know, the, of course, I'm going to say the proverbial, you know, balancing of, you know, of our lives and the work, work-life balance. And I think that we, we do need mentors um, to help us with that. We need mentors to teach us when to say no. Um, there's, you know, at a certain point, there's nothing more satisfying than actually being able to confidently say no and feel, and actually feel good about it. For a very long time, all I did was say, when I said yes, and if I ever did say no, it would take me about three weeks to get over the bad feeling of having said no. Um, even when, you know, whomever I said no to sort of got over it within a day and asked somebody else to do it, it still felt really bad. And, you know, it actually took someone telling me, you actually have more power in saying no and power as it relates to sort of your your own life path. And at some point you have to. And so somebody mentored me in that, right? So there's mentorship. Mentorship takes takes lots of forms. And I think being proactive and asking for it um, is, is important. I do think we are now in a generation where young trainees know how to ask for what they want. 
So true. They do that so well. I'm I jealous. think I'm oh yeah, I'm always surprised at some of the things even my fellows sort of ask for. Not in, in you know a negative way. It's just I'm surprised because I think to myself, gosh, I I don't even know if I would have asked like thought to, to ask for that. And I probably actually would have been too, and I'm a really vocal person, but I think I would have been maybe afraid to sort of speak to everything that I needed to be successful. And maybe back then I didn't know what I really needed. This generation seems to know better. Yes, I agree. And you have taught me this in that when you say yes to something that you, that you don't really want and then you're upset at yourself for saying yes, you have no one to blame but yourself. Right. And then and I mean, I I would I I know this, people like you and me and and all of our listeners. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hopefully more than 7 of you. <laughs> Um, <laughs> my mom, my dad, and my two brothers. <laughs> and Lenny, Lenny Siegel. And Lenny. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, oh hi, Lenny. Um, no, I think, I think that when we... Um, you're dying, I know. <laughs> so dying. <laughs> when we... You know, I've done this, I've said yes to so many things and then you are frustrated and I don't know, but you and I, we finish it, right? If you're a finisher, it's even more frustrating. We don't walk away from something we've said yes to and we've committed. And, you know, there's only so many hours in the day and there's only so many sort of, you know, threads to our being, right? That we can lend to other people. And so I think it's important to really, you know, sometimes here's the thing though, sometimes you do have to say yes, mm-hmm. you know, and even if it's not in your heart, especially at the beginning. And so you have to stretch yourself a little bit, but I think with stretching yourself, you learn over time what is worth, you know, your time and what's not. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I always try to do is now when somebody asks me to do something, so if somebody asks me to do a grand rounds or to give a talk and I can't do it, I always recommend somebody else, right? And so um, I always give them a couple of other options of people who are doing really interesting things. And that way, at least I feel like I've said yes in a a weird way. And you're sponsoring other people, right? True sponsorship. If that gets, you know, yes, I guess guess so as well. You know, it's funny, you know, I I said sponsorship shouldn't be about any gains. I will tell you that in those moments, I'm just trying (laughs) to get out of giving a talk. No, no, I, I mean, of course. You know, I think it's important. Um, the reason that I got so many opportunities is because my sponsors and met some of my mentors would give me their opportunities. And that's how it started. And I um, 100% am thankful for that and am happy to do it for others now. Fantastic. All right, one more question about surgical stuff and then we're gonna, we're gonna shift gears. But I wanna talk to you a little bit, a little bit about complications mm. in that we've... We've all had complications. If we say that we haven't, then we're either not operating or we're lying, right? Correct. So can you talk to me about the mental aspect of having a complication? This meaning, like, how do you cope with that? You know, how do you, you know, get back on the horse and and operate again? Um, I mean, it obviously impacts us for the short term versus long term. How do you handle that? Well, complications are tough, especially if, you know, you are a warm-blooded individual. So, um, yes, right. I mean, I think it sort of, we think, you know, we think about this complication happening in our own family member, you know, luckily most, the things we call complications, you know, the way I describe to patients in terms of what I do, right? So I'll often say in the end, there probably will be very little sequelae, um, but it could be very frustrating for the first couple months after your surgery is how I describe it. And I don't try to make light of it. I mean, 
you know, God forbid, sometimes something very life altering could happen, and theoretically it could, right? Um, especially as we do more and more complicated surgery and being working at a tertiary referral center, that's exactly what it is. It's patients who've had four opinions or patients who've already had four surgeries and you're trying to to salvage what's left or to do better than, you know, presumably four other surgeons. And um, often that's, again, where that it's better to be lucky than good um, situation comes into play. But complications happen, you know. When they happen, The I mean, I think, first of all, being a really good surgeon is recognizing your complications right away. I think that that's the most important thing. And so... I, I I have a tough time with and really scrutinize, not judge, but scrutinize and think about delayed, unrecognized complications. I think we need to first and foremost as surgeons do our best in avoiding those, right? And how do you do that? You cross check, you double check, you know what tools you're using, you know what kind of energy you're using if you're doing laparoscopic surgery, all of those really important things. If you don't know how something works, you probably shouldn't be doing it. I also firmly believe like for instance in you know, in FPMRS, we use mesh, right? We do mesh slings, we do sacrocobal pexies. If you don't know how to take it out, you shouldn't put it in. So that's like sort of, for me, first and foremost, those are sort of golden rules when it comes to surgery. You, you, you should know how to manage any intraoperative event that comes up and you should recognize it. But those events do come up, right? And so I think, and then you have to deal with them and you have to tell the family. And so, you know, I've learned very early on, I just say, I'm sorry this happened and I did it. Right, you have to just use I multiple times. I'm really sorry. There was a cystotomy, and so we had to change the course of this, you know, approach. I repaired it, and this is what's going to happen next. You need to be a really good doctor in those situations. I think that's how I cope with it. The way I cope with it is by being the best doctor I possibly can, which is, which means, con- you know, communicating with the patient. And you don't want to overdo it. You know, you have to be careful. There is actually a balance in that. Right. But you know making them not feel abandoned, checking in on them, being responsive. I think doctors get themselves into a lot of trouble when they're not responsive, when a surgery did not you know, go as planned. That can get you in a lot of trouble. But then there's sort of the, in, the important thing is to also play the surgery back and think about how you're going to do things better the next time. And I think we also have to be okay saying sometimes things just happen. Even in the best of, I say to patients when I consent them, I say these, they're incredibly rare risks, but in the best of days, best of hands, best of patients, Mm -hmm. this could still happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And I tell them, well, this hasn't happened to me before, or this has happened to me before, it's probably going to also happen again. I just don't know when, right? I try to not beat myself up too much about it, but it still hurts. You know, I still have this like internal cry sometimes when we're not in the business of of hurting anybody. We're trying to make them better. Um, So it's normal to sort of feel frustrated and to feel sad, you know, for a patient if if something has happened or transpired during a surgery. But I do my best by caring for them. And I, as a, um, I think it's no secret to most people who know me that I am an extrovert. Um, and and yes. how do extroverts deal with complications? They talk about them. Exactly. So I find somebody who's willing to listen and I talk it through. But I also now, differently now than before, I move on easier in terms of my focus. So while my heart is still with that patient until they've completely healed and I put time aside to make sure that they're getting through whatever the trajectory of the recovery is, I am able to refocus and 
do surgery again. I, my biggest advice to people who are fresh out is if you get a complication, move the next surgery that's the same surgery up sooner if it's not like within a few weeks, like do it again very quickly because it's going to go well and then you're going to feel fine again. But if you mentally convince yourself that it's going to happen during every surgery or you shy away, you will slowly, slowly become a paralyzed surgeon who will never actually sort of progress in your sort of skill and ability. And so that's my advice. And I really like wine and whiskey. Yes. <laughs> That's my, I like when my heart feels warm. And, and, right. And I enjoy having a glass of alcohol in the evening time if I'm feeling very stressed out about something. Could not agree more. And you know, I love how you said move the case up. I wasn't sure what you were going to say there, but you're exactly right. Because the longer sometimes you perseverate over it, then you all of a sudden start getting all these other emotions that are involved. When if you just did it again, it's going to go great. And at least you can, your last memory can be of a case that was really successful. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, a good example is, you know, not in the too distant past, I was operating with my senior fellow and we had a big caseload. Actually, I have two stories. This one is really sort of not a story, but we, you know, we were doing a very tough sacral copulpexy uh, with a prior prolapse surgery and lots of scarring. And, you know, we, got, we had a cystotomy that we repaired laparoscopically and then proceeded with her prolapse surgery. And it was the first time my fellow had gotten a cystotomy. So she said to me in the OR, and I believe her. And I believe and, her. I, I believe her. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever somebody says it's the first time, I always look at them like, like really? Um, but it, but I believe her and, um, and thankfully we did another small case after that one and then had another sacred copulpexy that day. And she looked at me and she said, I'm so happy we did another one because, you know, I'm, I still feel bad and we're going to have to, that patient's going to have to wear a catheter for a couple of weeks and we have to, you know, make sure that, you know, it heals. I'm so glad that, cause now I know it's, it can happen sometimes, but it's not bound to happen. Right. I had a very terrible intraoperative complication as a fellow. And um, so I'm going to say, her, I'm not the patient's name. I was going to say, I'm going to say her name, not the patient, but with, with Fifi Perezo. And I was a second year fellow. It was my first robotic case ever. And I was, you know, observing the case and we were working through it together. And we had a really terrible vascular complication that led to a very prolonged post-operative recovery and lots of things. And that was very, very traumatic. And um, in the midst of dealing with this, and it, I mean, it truly was a, a big, big complication. It's prob to, to date probably the most unnerving situation I've been in. And I remember it was, you know, three o'clock in the morning and we were, you know, at the, in the operating room and I looked at her and I said, you know, so we had done, it was, we had done two robots that day. It's three o'clock in the morning and I look at Dr. Perezo and I say, Dr. Perezo, we have another robot at 7.30 this morning and a one to follow that. Do you want me to scrub out and go, you know, call them and cancel those cases? And she looked at me and didn't say anything. She just looked at me for like, you know, we, somebody else was operating during this time. So it wasn't like we weren't, we weren't paying attention to the patient. And then she said, if you don't do that robot in four hours, you're never going to do one again. She was like, we're going to take care of those patients because they're scheduled for surgery this morning and they are deserving of the surgery they're about to get. We're going to drink a cup of coffee. We're going to shower and put new scrubs on and we're going to take care of them. 
And that sort of just stuck with me. I, well, I'm, I'll tell you, as a second year fellow who was exhausted at three o'clock in the morning, I thought she was totally nuts. And I was kind of angry at her. I, I mean, I was a little angry at her. I thought she was going to say, of course, go cancel, you know, yeah. but she did not. And um, we, went, we went and did two robots that day. Um, and I left there and while I, I felt my knees felt wobbly and I was so tired and emotionally spent from having cared for, for that patient who's just fine and did well. But again, it was a pretty scary moment. I, I, I tell my fellows that story now too. And she's sort of, you know, putting aside, is it okay to operate when you're tired, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's a different story. Her lesson to me there was you compartmentalize. We've taken care of this patient. Things happen. And it's okay to move on and take care of somebody new because that person has their only framework or context is that they're having surgery that morning and you're the surgeon. Um, and obviously we were well enough to to move forward and do those surgeries, but I'll always remember that um, as being a horrible complication, but sort of moving forward and getting right back on the horse and uh, doing our jobs. That's powerful. Mm. Dr. Perezo is a force of nature. <laughs> <laughs> that is for sure. You know, we all have the same little corner row, right? It's yes. like Fifi, you, me, Walters used to be over there. Yeah. It's a powerful corner. Yes. Yes. I like it over there. And that is all for this episode of Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed. Join us next week for part two of Cecile's interview where she goes deeper into coping with complications, unique barriers to being a woman in surgery, and surgical innovation. From all of us at the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, thanks for listening.